me to teach your word properly. Help each one of us to hear it uh, with hearts that long to obey you. Uh, work in us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, can I get you to turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, which is on page 1158 of your church Bibles. Page 1158. On your way in, you were given two handouts. And on one of them, on the inside of that, that's got an outline of where we're going. Uh, it be helpful to have that with you as well. You can see where, where, where we're up to. Uh, and if you want to take notes, you can, you can use that as well. But m- most important, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, on page 1158. Well, the Apostle Paul is now coming to the end of 1 Corinthians. He said nearly everything that he wants to say. The big climax was last week, wasn't it? When he finished speaking about the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, he said, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So always be steadfast, always be immovable, always be abounding in the work of the Lord. In these last chapters, we see a few things about the work of the Lord. They are disparate things. There's not a single theme that ties them all together, as in other passages. But, but, but I've grouped them together for our purposes in three sections. You can see them on the outline. Uh, the second section, uh, um, in verses 13 to 16, is an exhortation to the church about how they should live. Uh, the last section contains greetings from individuals and churches and, and Paul himself. But the first section, in verses 1 to 8, uh, there we get the greatest insight into the way the Apostle Paul carries out his ministry. Insights that we can use as examples for us as we engage in gospel ministry. There are insights, as you can see, into collecting and managing money, in verses 1 to 4. Insights into planning for gospel ministry, uh, in verses 5 to, 5 to 8. Uh, insights are relating to other gospel ministers uh, in verses 10 to 12. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, and we're going to start by looking at money. Because like it or not, money and ministry are very much related. But how do you go about your giving? And how do those who are responsible go about handling it? Well, Paul answers both these questions in this section about money. He deals with a collection, as I said, in verse 1 and 2. And then he deals with accountability in verse 3 and 4. You see, Paul's been collecting money from the Gentile churches, the non-Jewish churches, for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is poor. Many of them were living in poverty. And Paul wanted to bring a material gift from the Gentile churches, the non-Jewish churches, to say thank you for all the spiritual blessings that the Jewish churches had shared with the Gentiles. Uh, furthermore, a gift of love would help strengthen the relationships between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, which, which had been strained at times. Uh, and finally, Paul had promised Peter, James and John many years before, as he went to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, that he would remember the poor, uh, and particularly the poor in Jerusalem. And so Paul started this collection 
among the Gentile churches, and he wanted the Corinthians to be part of this collection as well. He had obviously talked to them before about this. He explained it all to them. Uh, and now he's just giving them instructions about how to go about things. Perhaps they'd asked them. They'd asked him, uh, and he's answering their question. And so in chapter 16, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, the Jewish Christians, as I directed the churches of Galatia, you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Right, a few things I want us to notice about this giving. Uh, first of all, in verse 2, it is regular, isn't it? Paul says, on the first day of the week, which is what we call Sunday, put something aside. Now, why first day of the week? Probably because the first day of the week was when they met me. Right? Like, like we do. Right? Sunday, we get together, he says, put something aside and, and store it up. Now, you could argue both ways, whether store it up means store it up yourself or, or, uh, or church stores it up for you. Uh, I think it's the latter because Paul says he doesn't want collection when he comes. Uh, and furthermore, if you're storing up yourself, any day as you can. It doesn't have to be the first day of the week. So I think what he's saying is, on Sunday, when you get together, put aside something and store it up. Right? That's a regular thing uh, that he wants them to do. Now, I know that we're not in exactly the same position as the Corinthians. We don't collect money for the poor Christians in Jerusalem, but we do collect money for ministry. We do collect money to fund the ministries, to pay our staff, to pay our bills, to maintain our facilities, to help the poor, and to bring the gospel to new communities. And we mustn't be slack about that. It's, it's part of being godly. And so here's the principle. Regularly set aside money for the Lord's work. And the normal way to do that is to bring it to the gathering of God's people on the first day of the week. Now, of course, we can't be legalistic about it. That's the principle, right? One day we might decide to have church on a different day. Or you might decide to set up direct debit to give. Or you might use monthly envelopes because you get your paycheck once a month and you want to make sure it's the first thing you do. And Paul doesn't tell whether to pass the offering bag around or to have a beige box on the welcome desk. But the principle for collecting the money is the same. Giving is meant to be regular. And it's normally linked in some way with the weekly gathering of God's people. The second thing I want us to notice here is that the giving involves everyone. It is universal. Look again in verse 2. He says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside. He doesn't say everyone has got a good job. It's like all of you who have got money to spare. He says, each of you. It's, it's meant to involve everyone because we are all gospel partners together. We're all part of God's work. This is how we express it. This is one way of how we express it. Uh, in the ancient world, charitable funds would only target rich people to ask for donations for, for obvious reasons. But this is not that. This is part of being partners. And Paul wants everyone to be involved. Now, he doesn't expect everyone to put in the same amount. Uh, giving is meant to be proportionate. So each person, verse 2, is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper. Right? If he has prospered more, then he's to set aside more. If he's prospered less, he should set aside less. Everyone is involved, but everyone gives according to their means. And that's how we should do it as well, isn't it? Right? Each of us are involved, no exceptions. 
But how much we contribute, well, that'll be quite different from person to person. If you're destitute, you might put one ringgit in each week. Church might give you a hundred ringgit from the social concerns fund, but you still put in your one ringgit or your ten ringgit or whatever it is. That's your contribution to the Lord's work. Part of your partnership. On the other hand, you might have a very well-paying job when you put a thousand ringgit in each week. One ringgit or a thousand ringgit depends on how God prospers you. One thing to say though, Paul is deliberately vague on how much and what percentage. He doesn't say. Give according to your means. In the Old Testament there was a tithe. People set aside 10% of their income for God. But in the New Testament the percentage is never stated. It's not stated here. It's not stated anywhere. Because giving to God's word is not a tax. It's not meant to be a form of religious taxation where you give 10% and 90% is yours. Right? We belong to God. We were bought with Jesus' blood. We are His. And if we are His, then 100% of everything we have is His. Not 10% God's and 90% is mine. 100% is God. And we give some for His work and use some for His work. Percentage to give away? Doesn't say. You decide. 10% was the rule for the Old Testament saints. We've received a lot more than them. Maybe we can afford to give more. But whatever you decide to give, that's for you to decide. When Paul writes to the Corinthians later, he will say about this same collection, he will say in 2 Corinthians 9-7, I'll just read it to you, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Decide and give regularly, proportionately, from the heart. Do it in response to God's grace. Do it because you believe the gospel message that Jesus gave himself for you. Do it generously, not being stingy. Do it cheerfully, being thankful for the privilege. Do it confidently, knowing God will supply your needs. And do it for the glory of God, so that because of your generosity, people will thank God, not you. So do it privately as well. The second thing we see here about money is not the collection, but the management. And we see the importance of accountability and transparency in the handling of the money. See, Paul doesn't say, collect the money and I'm going to look after it for you. No. He's got a process in place to ensure there is proper accountability for the funds that are collected. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. He says, And when I come, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable I should go also, then they will accompany me. You see that? The Corinthians are supposed to accredit certain people whom they trust by letter, in writing. And it's not just one, it's people, isn't it? I will send those whom you accredit by letter. It's plural. Right? And so these people whom they accredit will carry to give to Jerusalem. Right. Paul may or may not go with them. If he goes with them, then they will accompany him. But they are the ones responsible for the money. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that the Apostle Paul was trustworthy? Of course he was trustworthy. Would you trust him to take your money to the right place? I'd trust him to take my money to the right place. Of course I would. 
the Corinthians should have trusted him too. But, but Paul is not going to say, hey, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, so you can trust me to handle your money. Uh, he does say, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Listen to what I say about your salvation or you'll be eternally lost. But when it comes to delivering the money, the apostle Paul, as trustworthy as he is, says, you choose a number of people whom you accredit and they will come with me and they will deliver the money. So that there would never be any doubt in the Corinthian minds that the money they set aside for the church in Jerusalem will go to the church in Jerusalem. In doing this, the Apostle Paul sets the example for us and, and for all ministers of the Gospel. No one's more trustworthy than Paul, but Paul sets things up so there is accountability and transparency in what happens. So not only is there integrity in the handling of money, but there is seen to be integrity as well. And we need to always have that in the church. There's no room for being slack or unaccountable for money that's donated. No matter how trustworthy a pastor or any other leader is, we still need to have the checks and procedures to make sure our integrity is not open to doubt. Right? That's why when we cut the money, we always have two unrelated people to count and sign, document before putting it in the safe. That's why our Cathedral Finance Committee has to work very hard to make sure everything's accounted for and seen to be so. We can't have a situation where people can complain that you should, you should have trusted me with the money. No, we should always have the checks and counterchecks. And no one should ever put themselves in a position where they can reasonably be accused of mishandling money. Apostle Paul made sure he set things up so this could not happen. And we would be wise to heed his example. Well, if they're collecting money for when Paul comes, the next question is, when does Paul come? And that brings us to our next section where we talk about planning for gospel ministry. Planning. Well, remember Paul had preached the gospel and planted churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, places collectively called Macedonia, and then in Athens before he came down to Corinth. After Corinth, he went to a place called Ephesus where he, bought, where he wrote this letter and the one before it. Was Paul planning to come back to Corinth because of all the issues that, were, that he's talked about in this letter? Well, yes, but not yet. They weren't the only church he had to visit. And so he planned to retrace his, his steps through Macedonia first before coming to Corinth. He says in verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. Right? Winter is a good time, to, not a good time rather, to travel by sea. Uh, so it would be good for Paul to find one place where he can stay for a while. And if Corinth has got all these problems, that would be a strategic place for him to come and spend some time. And so he says in verse 6, uh, I, I might stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Right, so he's going to spend some time with them. Winter, that fits in nicely. So he might go there for winter. And, well, he's going to ask the Corinthians to help him on his journey to the next place. Uh, that's perfectly right. Ministry is not one way, it's two way. He's going to come and serve them and they're going to help him to get to the next place where he can preach the gospel. 
But all that's for later. For now he's going to remain where he is. He says in verse 8 and 9, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has been opened for me. Paul has been given a great gospel opportunity in Ephesus, and he doesn't want to miss out. We know from elsewhere that the gospel is going out to the whole region, actually, uh, through his work at Ephesus. People are coming there, hearing the gospel, going out, starting churches all over the place. So it's, it's, it's going really well. And Paul wants to stay there, at least till Pentecost, which was just, just the name of the time of the year where the Jews had their harvest festival. And the fact that things were going well, that there was a door open for effective ministry, well, made him want to stay. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't problems. In fact, in fact he says, at the end of verse 9, that there are many adversaries. Right? Many adversaries. That's just normal when the gospel work is happening. That's normal. But the current level of opposition didn't necessitate Paul moving on. The door was still open, and he wanted to make the most of it. Now, as we think about what Paul's just said, there are a number of things we notice here by way of example about ministry planning. Again, we're not in exactly the same position as Paul. He's the apostle of the Gentiles, and we are not. But like him, we seek to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples of all the nations, and like him, we need to think and plan and do some strategy. Well, the first thing we see here is that there is a plan. Right? Paul is indeed thinking ahead and making plans. He's not just wandering around preaching the gospel. He's not just waiting to hear what God is telling him to do today or tomorrow. He's making plans for the future. They are tentative plans. They are flexible plans. Plans that can change, and actually they do change. But nevertheless, he makes plans. And secondly, they are somewhat strategic plans. There is some strategy involved. He understands the problems with traveling in winter, and he wants to maximize his use of time. That's why he's going to Corinth then. He sees an open door for the gospel in his present ministry in Ephesus, so he wants to stay there. He knows he needs the Corinthians to help him so he, to, to, to move on to the next place, and so he will go there and ask for help. Not only does Paul make plans, but there are good reasons behind the plans that he makes. But thirdly, Paul is careful not to invoke God's name onto his own plans. Did you notice that? That's how he doesn't say, I prayed about this and God told me to stay at Ephesus. And he doesn't say, I'd love to come and see you now, but it's not really the Kairos moment. Right? I sense that God wants me to stay here now and then move up to Macedonia and then come and see you. He doesn't say, I feel in my spirit that God wants me to do this first. No, no, he just speaks plainly, straightforward and clear. This is his plan and this is why. When it comes to open doors, notice how he speaks in verse 9. He says, a wide open door, a wide door for effective work has opened for me. Notice how he puts it in the passive. Paul didn't open the door. The door was opened. Now, we know who opened the door, don't we? It's pretty clear. God opened the door. But Paul says, a door has been opened for me, rather than God opened the door for me. Because if he said, God opened the door for me, the implication God has communicated to him that he wants him to be there. If he says a door has been opened for me, the implication is God has given him an opportunity to be there. Paul doesn't invoke God's name simply to support his own, even though it's appropriate, planning. Now, it's not as if God never tells him to change directions. It's not as if God never overrides his plans. God lets him plan, gives him freedom to do that, but when he particularly wants him to go in a certain direction, well, he's quite capable of telling him. 
There was a time when God gave him a dream to make him change direction. You remember that in Acts? There was a time when Luke writes, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to minister in a certain place. There are times when God does do that. But generally speaking, God's given Paul the big plan, God and preached the gospel to the Gentiles, and allows him to work out how he's going to do that. And while Paul doesn't invoke God's name on his own plans, he does submit to God's sovereignty. He knows that God is in control and that Paul's plans are only plans. God might have other plans, and if so, then Paul's plans are going to be thwarted. And so when he makes his plans, he's very careful to say, at the end of verse 9, or end of verse 7 rather, if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits, you see. He doesn't plan with the attitude that he's in charge, but he plans humbly and submits his plans to God's will. And brothers and sisters, that's a good model for our ministry planning too, isn't it? We are to make plans. We need to make plans. In accordance with what God has already revealed. Don't wait for God to tell us what to do next. He's already told us to take his gospel to make disciples of all nations. If there's anything specific he wants to tell us when we make our plans, he's quite capable of doing that. Otherwise, we're to go ahead and make plans under him. Thoughtfully, carefully, lovingly, strategically, and tentatively. Like Paul, we're to communicate these plans. But when we do, we're not to claim a higher authority for our plans than they deserve. Still our plans. And we're to take responsibility for them. But at the same time, acknowledge their limitations. God is sovereign. We are not. Our plans might fail. Our plans might change. All our planning and communicating of our plans is done with the attitude, if the Lord wills. That's how we plan. Well, plans are one thing, people are another. And there are often times various difficulties when dealing with people. We know that, don't we? And the next thing Paul talks about here is the relationship of the Corinthians with, with other gospel workers. He speaks to them in verse 10 to 12 about Timothy. Here's what he says. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Isn't it disappointing that Paul has to tell the Corinthians to put Timothy at ease and no one should despise him? Isn't it? You remember from the opening chapters of, from Corinthians that they had a thing for eloquent preachers and wise-sounding orators? Maybe Timothy wasn't one of those. Well, actually, he wasn't. And he wasn't even an apostle like Paul and Peter. He wasn't a great preacher like Apollos. He was younger than them as well. They probably thought, not quite up to the standard. And worse, for some reason or other, there were some people who, for whatever reason, didn't like him. Might have caused trouble for him. Paul has to tell them to help him on his way in peace. That's pretty sad as well, isn't it? It's, it's really another indictment on the Corinthian church. But sadly, this kind of thing does happen in churches. There are people who, like certain leaders, don't like others, might even look down on them and cause trouble for them. But, but if these are godly leaders who are doing the work of the Lord, you're genuinely serving the Lord Jesus, 
that like Timothy, we should put them at ease. Shouldn't despise them, shouldn't cause trouble for them. Because if we cause them to be disheartened, if we hinder their ministry, if we distract them from the task of serving Jesus by causing troubles and issues, then, then we're impeding the work of the kingdom. On the other hand, the, the Corinthians liked Apollos. Remember, some of them even had an Apollos appreciation group as opposed to the Paul appreciation group. Right? Paul didn't approve of any of these groups. He didn't want the Corinthians to be divided between them. And so he calls Apollos, verse, uh, verse 12, as our dear brother. Right? We've got a good relationship. And he encourages Apollos to visit them. doesn't try and stop him. I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers. But looks like Apollos himself didn't want to buy into things. He doesn't want to rush in and shore up his support. Because he said it was not at all his will to come now. Apollos too has other gospel priorities and they don't include an immediate Corinthian visit. He will come, Paul says, when he has opportunity. Sometimes immature Christians will try and pit one faithful Christian leader against another. And Christian leaders shouldn't buy into that. It's not about the ego, it's not about the person. It's about the ministry, it's about the gospel, isn't it? Well, the next section is a few things that Paul says to the church. Sometimes, sometimes when you've been taught lots of things, you need to take a few one-liners home with you. You notice that? Uh, this letter, 16 chapters in our book, would have been read to the whole Corinthian church at once. So what Paul does is he gives them some short exhortations here at the end to summarize things, to sum things up. Right, and what he says to them is what the Spirit says to us through this letter. Here's a few one-liners. Verse 13. Be watchful. Watch out. Watch out for what? Read the rest of the chapter. Read the rest of the book. Watch out for divisions on personalities and not on the gospel. Chapters 1 to 4. Watch out for sexual immorality. immorality chapter 5, 6 and 7. Watch out for idolatry. Chapters 8 to 10. Watch out for wrong or unloving practices in the congregations. 11 to 14. Watch out for false teaching on the resurrection that will rob you of your hope. Chapter 15. Watch out. Don't let these things grow in the church. Don't let these things take root in the church. Watch out. And then he says, stand firm in the faith. The faith is the, is the body of teaching that is passed down. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ and its implications in our life and doctrine. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He rose again according to the scriptures. So he is Lord. That is the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Don't let anyone take that away from you by false teaching. Don't let anyone entice you away from it by sin. Don't let anyone distract you by bringing competing agendas into the church. Stand firm in the faith. Verse 13 continues to the next thing. Act like men or play the man in some translations. The meaning here is be courageous, be brave. And Paul goes on, be strong. You see, there will always be threats and dangers that come from outside the church. There'll be persecutions, there'll be trouble. But Paul says, be strong, be courageous. In our Old Testament reading, God told his people to be strong and courageous because he was going to give them the land. He was going to go with them into the land. And he told their leader, Joshua, to be strong and courageous as well. Jesus, our leader, has been strong and courageous. He was obedient to the very end. And, and we, his people, should be like that too. God has promised us our inheritance in the new creation. And we've seen over the last two weeks how great that resurrection glory will be. So, 
Don't fear. Hold firm. Be strong and courageous, whatever the opposition you might face. Next, Paul reminds them of the big lesson of the letter in verse 14. Let all you do be done in love. Many of the problems of the Corinthian church were happening because they failed to love each other. And Paul has to tell them, act in love. Remember how we saw in Smago and our weekend away that whole beautiful chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13 was actually a point-by-point rebuke for the way they've been behaving. And brothers and sisters, we too have to make sure that whatever we do, we do in love. How we conduct our meetings, how we share in the Lord's Supper, the place of the gifts, it is love that determines it. We are to do all things to build up the body in love. And we are to be prepared to give up our personal rights for our brothers and sisters if that's what it takes to love. Do everything in love. And honor the people who set the example in doing that. Stephanus and his household, in, in, in verse 15, devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Paul says, be subject to people like this. Submit to them. They are the kind of leaders you ought to follow. Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaeus brought refreshment and, and encouragement to Paul as a gospel worker. Paul says the Corinthians recognized him for it. Same principle applies to us. Honor those who work hard for the gospel. Submit to their leadership. Honor those who support them in their work. Respect them for their service. So be watchful. Hold firm in the faith. Be courageous and strong. Do everything in love. Honor those who serve. We now come to the final reminders and greetings. First of all, there are greetings from the churches. They're reminding the Corinthians are not independent. There are other churches of Jesus Christ as well. And they're meant, they're meant to love them too. And that's important for us as well, isn't it? We, we're part of a wider family. We belong to a group of congregations that make up the cathedral. The cathedral belongs to a group of congregations that make up the diocese, and we network with churches from all different denominations. The Corinthians might have had island mentalities, but no church is an island, and Paul wants them to remember other churches as well. And then there's the internal greeting. There's a command in verse 20 to greet one another with a holy kiss. What Paul is saying is that there, there should be no animosity between people in the congregation. No animosity should remain. He's already told them off for having their Paul and Paulos and Cephas parties. No, more par- no, I'm not talking to this person. I'm not shaking hands with this person. You, you, you can't do that in love. So if you're a Corinthian, then kiss and make up. If you're a Malaysian, at least shake hands. Right? <laughs> but be reconciled to each other. Greet each other warmly. And finally, Paul takes up his pen for his personal greetings. Up to now, he's been dictating and his secretary, Sosthenes, has been writing it down. We see Sosthenes in, in, right at the beginning of the book. But now he's going to sign off in his own handwriting, in verse 21. And, as he signs off in his own handwriting, he writes three things. First of all, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. All right, what he's saying is, if you don't love Jesus, then, quite Literally, okay, you, 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 you're, you're under God's curse. Or you're heading for hell. And it may be he's saying this because it is people who don't love Jesus who are actually destroying the Corinthian church. You see, from the beginning of the letter, Paul has been writing as if all the Corinthians were genuine Christians. Which is right. When you write a letter to the visible church, you write as if everyone is part of the true church. 
And he calls them, back in chapter 1, you remember that? The church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. But realistically, not everyone in the Corinthian church really is. And that's always the case in churches. You might have leaders in the church who aren't really believers, but they're there for some other reason. And so he ends with this warning. That's a, that's a warning for us as well. There will always be people in our churches who don't trust Jesus. And the warning is, being part of the visible church, being a member of the visible church, won't, that's, won't, won't save you. You're only saved by trusting in Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, then you will go to hell, even if you come to church every Sunday. And as Paul looks on the Corinthian church with all its sin and its divisions and its weakness, he longs for the day when it will be what it is really is. When it will be the holy and spotless church of God. When you look at Corinth, you see all the problems one by one by one by one by one. Each of those chapters, so many difficult things in Corinth. But he longs for the day when that church is going to be seen for the truth of it being the sanctified, holy church of God. And he prays for that day. He says, our Lord, come. Right? The, the word is sometimes said Maranatha. It's our Lord, come. Prays for the Lord to come. And at the same time, he prays in verse 23 that the grace of the Lord Jesus will be with them because it is only by grace that Jesus will keep them for that day. They don't deserve it. None of them do. None of us do. And even as we look at our own church, if we look at the churches in our country, we, we say the same thing, don't we? Different levels, of course. Different degrees. But same things. We see unity in Christ. We also see division. We see gospel courage. We also see capitulation and weakness. We see self-sacrificial love and action. And we also see actions that betray a lack of love. We see people who love Jesus and preach his gospel and serve his people. And we also see sin and unbelief and failure. And we long for the day when the church will be what she truly is, the holy, perfect, spotless bride of Christ. She comes down from heaven beautifully dressed for her husband. And we pray for that day. We say, come Lord Jesus. And we pray that God, by his grace, will keep us trusting in Jesus and loving him till that day. Well, the Apostle Paul has taught the Corinthians to love each other in response to the love that God has shown them in Christ. The last line of his letter expresses that personal attitude to them with the implied prayer that they will know it. Verse 24, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. See, Paul's just written a pretty tough letter to them. He's answered difficult theological and pastoral questions. He's scolded them, right, a number of times, the way they've been acting that's unbefitting of the way of who they are in Christ. But he has done this because he loves them. That's how the apostle relates to the church. That's how every pastor should relate to his congregation. Every growth group leader of the people he leads, every parent of the children they bring up, teach them, Correct them, rebuke them, train them with the word of God, and always do it because you love them. Love them because Jesus loves them. 
and Jesus loves you. They belong to him, they are precious to him, as are you. So love the people you lead, like Paul, like Jesus. And people, listen to leaders who love you like that. So, in conclusion, what should we do in obedience to this passage? Give money for gospel work, regularly and proportionately. Do it from the heart. Watch the accounts. Make sure all the money is accounted for. Make sure there's transparency and integrity, and this is seen by everyone. Plan for gospel work. Plan carefully, purposefully, and strategically, but humbly, knowing that it depends on God, not us. Support gospel workers, especially those who work hard among you. Encourage them, don't discourage them. Receive them well and don't pit one against the other. Watch out for sin and false teaching. Hold firm to the gospel. Be courageous and strong in the midst of opposition. Do everything in love. Honor those who serve. Maintain relationships in the church. Foster relationships with other churches. Pray for those who don't love Jesus and be willing to receive rebuke, correction, and training from gospel workers who love you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many things that you have taught us as we've worked through 1 Corinthians these last months. Thank you for reminding us of the centrality of the Gospel. Thank you for reminding us that we preach Christ and Him crucified in the power of the Spirit, looking to you to change hearts. Thank you for reminding us of the need to love one another, to avoid breaking up into parties and groups. Thank you for reminding us of the need for discipline, for avoiding sexual immorality and idolatry, the priority of holiness in our own lives, in the life of your church. Thank you for reminding us about how serious it is when we take the Lord's Supper to remember the death of Jesus together. Thank you for reminding us how important it is to love one another. Not only in that part of our meeting, but in every part of our meeting. And to use our gifts to build up the body and not to make a name for ourselves. Thank you for reminding us of the glory of the resurrection, the hope of eternal life with you, the promise of the future inheritance that we have not because of our goodness but because of what you have done for us in Jesus by giving him to die for us and rise again. And thank you for the various reminders we've received today in this passage. 
Help us to be people who are watchful as a community. Watch out for these traps that we've read about in 1 Corinthians and avoid them together. Help us to be people who hold firm to the faith. Hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ and never waver from that. And never get distracted by other things. Just take our mind off that. Help us to be people who are courageous and strong in the midst of opposition. We know that will arise and has arisen. Help us to be people who do everything in love. Who know the great love with which you have loved us and seek to love one another in that way. Help us be people who honor those who serve among us. Father, we pray that more and more you'll make us who we are. Your church, holy, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. We pray that more and more we'll reflect that holiness and love in, in our lives and the lives in our life together. And we long for the day when that is perfected, when the Lord Jesus returns. And we pray that you will keep us until that day trusting in him. We ask these things for his sake and his glory. Amen.